coffee is still out. The lights are still on. You can get up any time, but we need to continue. We have lots to cover and really fun ground. The interesting thing is, is that there are so many ways in which our flesh runs against the gospel and against this message of God and Christ alone. There, we pull out passages and you just pull out passage after passage. And I want to give a tiny devotional as we run into the next about another area that we struggle in, and that is this word of striving. Have you ever heard you need to strive? It's in the Bible. It's Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The reason why I struggle with this is that I define in my head what striving means. I start to think, oh, you know what? Uh, I can strive to be the best I should be. And then I know we in this room and every Christian that I know says it's not about salvation our good works aren't about salvation. So it must be that I'm supposed to strive for good things afterwards. And I get my picture of what that looks like, and it comes directly from the world. So I want to show you a short video. And I just want you to see this very wonderful, I love him. I love what he stands for, how that might fit in my Christian life. So dim the lights, and, and here we go. I want to introduce you to Mimo. fast and somehow he gets faster with age surprise for me too today memo is one of the top 10 runners in the world for his age group he's also a porter in an apartment building in queens new york we'll come back to that later memo believes in three things hard work never giving up and actually just two things fine two things the American fitness industry is worth over $30 billion a year. That's a lot of fancy gear and gym memberships. But Memo doesn't believe in gadgets. This is Memo's heart monitor. This is Memo's gym. This is Memo's nutrition plan. And this is Memo's locker. Memo doesn't believe in swanky gyms or boutique yoga studios. He doesn't believe in self-promotion even though there would be a lot to promote. I win some races, yes. You know what Memo really believes in? Memo believes in running. It's my life. Make me feel free. On November 3rd, Memo will take the day off to run the New York City Marathon. He's on track to run faster than ever. Memo reminds us that we're being sold and packaged something that's free. Achievement doesn't come from a sports brand or the latest high-tech gizmo. Just ask Memo. He believes in just three... Two. Right. Two things. That's the Memo method. Okay. I love him. Don't you? I see that and my heart goes to it and I go, yes, the hard work and don't give up. And, and, and if you saw that and I, I want to put it into my framework of Christian living, where do you go? I go directly to where I think the word striving is. If I can strive rightly, I can work on doing with hard work and never giving up. I can attain the things that I'm supposed to attain. Not a Christian, right? New York Times opinion piece. Nothing to do with Christianity. Absolutely 100% the world. And I love it. I do. So 
So I come up with charts like this. This is from a book that I had to throw away. This is how to manage your sin. It's a short flow outline. And this is just what you can go through. If you're going to get rid of your sin, you can start over here. And I said, well, I'm going to strive, you see. And with heart, it's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy, but there's two, three, I mean, two rules. <laughs> Keep working hard and never give up. And you can do it. And then we'll add in even a line something that this is Christ who strengthens you to accomplish. You being uh, faster. Hey, true story. He ran the New York City Marathon faster than he'd ever run before. That was just last week. He did it. His hard work. It works in the world. It's what the world's about. It's merit and work. It is so true and so good. And if you want a super nice house on the hill, get a job, work hard, earn your money, buy the house. But don't pull it here, which here's Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am so tempted to think that what he's talking about is what we just saw in that video. Work hard. Never give up. And you will get there. And I just had ripped the Bible from its moorings. Because if you just go up a couple of verses, here's, here's what he's talking about needing to strive about. I says, I want to be found in him, not having a goodness, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, not in his life, right? That our striving and why we're here today is that we might hear from these amazing speakers that are coming up and telling us and talking to us that our striving is to receive the amazing grace and goodness of Jesus and to believe that the power of God produces in us what he says he will. That's striving. And that's not what the world says. Much as I loved Nemo. Nemo. He was cool. So that's the devotional for now. And, and what I'd like to do now is to introduce, just for a moment, Marnie Fritz. I don't know that she'll say it herself. She works on pastoral staff down at, at is it Mount Zion Lutheran, Lutheran Church? Thank you, Zion. And she's a, a professor at St. Paul Lutheran Seminary. And she um, got to study under some amazing people, some of my favorite theologians that I get to read now, um, one of whom's no longer with us. But I just am super excited and thankful that you're here. So welcome you up. Please, please come. Well, one thing that Dax uh, forgot to mention is, is that I am a sinner. So, uh, so from one sinner to other sinners, and because I am called to both teach and preach the gospel, I am I not on? Until he sits. 
I have an announcement for you that on account of Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. So you are free to go. <laughs> and if you want to hang around, I guess I can uh, have a few things to share. So um, this has worked out just great. And God is amazing, I think, because... Um, I'm a part of this this Facebook group that they've been mentioning, and the topics, or the topic, and then our subtopics in that main topic have all really come to gel together. Dax's just have set me up. So I'm thankful for this. Uh, We didn't coordinate any other way. This is all God doing. And, um, yeah, I'll get to the details of this in a moment. Um, As pastors... Preachers. Uh, so my husband is actually the lead pastor at our congregation. Um, I lead some Bible studies and I do some visitation. And very commonly, as a pastor, um, not so much where we are now, but in previous churches, after the service is done and he's absolved them of their sins, and he's standing at the back of the church, and the people are exiting and shaking hands and, you know, spreading germs and <laughs> saying thank you or whatever they want to. Very often, someone will say something like this. Pastor, why do you always talk about our salvation in your sermons? We already know that, right? When are you going to start telling us what we should be doing? Or, to put a little finer point on it, what comes after forgiveness? I mean, there is something more, right? That can't be the whole thing. So, this is both uh, an exciting uh, opportunity Uh, Sometimes it's a little bit of a burden for the pastors, both good and uh, bad. Um, But this is this is what we are entering into in this topic here. So the the yes, but of the third use of the law. So this might be strange language to some of you. Um, I'm Lutheran, as they mentioned, which means actually I'm evangelical. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, the history in the Lutheran Church uh, is. Is there is a history of the defining of the law and various uses of the law. And so I want to delve into that a little bit, uh, just for some anchorage, and uh, how that's currently appropriated, not just in our Lutheran traditions, but how in your own tradition, though you might not use the same terminology, you can start to see how this is uh, being levied toward you. Um, certainly not by Dax. By the way, uh, you sh- if you're a part of this congregation, you are very blessed to have Dax as your preacher because to hear, yeah, right? Um, to hear this sort of word nowadays, um, it's hard to find a church that actually preaches this week in and week out. Um, there's all sorts of other voices out there, and uh, itching ears want to hear what the other people are telling them. And so, anyway, um, this is a wonderful place to be located. Yeah, the bill's in the mail. 
So, um, so yeah, so I want to locate the, 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 the issue of the law a little bit historically for you, how it's currently being levied. Then I want to talk about the appropriate distinction between the law and the gospel. Okay? And then also this very tantalizing, extraordinarily useful uh, thing that Luther discovers in his study of Scripture, what he identifies, or I should say he coins, called the simul, which is Latin, uh, fancy Latin words, uh, the simul justus et peccator, which is saying uh, you are simultaneously uh, a saint and justified. Uh, excuse me, a saint and a sinner. Okay? Justified and a sinner at the same time. So we're going to delve into why it is or how it is he actually sees this and um, uh, and talk about the actual scriptures that he sees this in originally. Okay. So very commonly, as I mentioned, you get these questions, you know, about, well, what is it that we are supposed to do? Isn't there something more? When are you going to tell us what we are to do? That sort of thing. And there is very often a deep-seated assumption with that sort of question. And that's this, and you've heard it already from, from Dax and from, from Jeff as well. Why would God give us the law if he did not intend for us to fulfill it? Right? Or uh, more than that, if there are so many commands, is it not in fact this law that is a kind of an eternal ladder that is the righteousness of God that extends from earth below up to heaven above that we should be ascending to reach God's righteousness. After all, uh, God gave it to his own people, Israel, through Moses, and we as Christians, being the adopted sons and daughters of Abraham, should also, too, then have this law. Maybe not all 600 and whatever, 613 laws in the Torah, but can you do at least 10 of them? Okay. Is, that, is that a good bargaining number? After all, as Christians, we have Jesus Christ as our example. And he does this thing where he deposits little bits of grace along the way to help you do this. Right? So sounding a little bit familiar, or uh, suspicious at least, right? And that leads to another assumption, which is actually a very deep-seated belief in what is called the free will, right? Uh, so I want to uh, open this up a little bit right here. Is Luther uh, talks about the free will in two different ways. Um, he talks about it in the, uh, what he calls in the realm below, which is basically your life here. And he says, if you want to use the term free will, this is where we exercise and use it, right? You got to choose, for example, what you eat for breakfast this morning, or if you ate breakfast, or what you drink, um, what you wore, whether you're, you know, whether you're a Cougars fan or a Husky fan. Can I say that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you feel more bound that way. I'm not sure. Um, so, but basically, here is where you uh, exercise freedom in your will. But, he says, when it comes to the realm above, we do not exercise the free will. In fact, our will is bound 
And the realm above is simply this, God, your justification, your salvation. is not where you exercise your free will. In fact, the cross shows us this, that when God actually comes to us, we are bound and determined to crucify him. Okay, so, so our old selves, our sinners in us, are in rebellion with God. Okay? All right, so, so just keep that in mind. Whenever I'm talking about the free will, and, and in this particular discussion here, that's what I'm referring to. I'm not saying, you know, you don't have a choice to, you know, go to McDonald's afterward or not. This is, this is um, when it comes to God, we are bound to reject him. So this is uh, getting a little bit to what to just was pointing to is that if there's going to be faith, uh, I know I don't want a God. I want to be God, right? So <clears throat> he's going to have to do it. He's going to have to give it to me because I don't have it in myself. He's going to give it to me. He's going to create it out of nothing. Now, what has happened in the vast majority of American Christianity um, has been to take these assumptions, these questions, and bake them together in the cake of the glory story of the Christian life. So it goes like this. The Christian is in this scheme, a son of Adam who has fallen almost all the way down into sin, save one tiny little divine spark way deep down and in, called the free will, and just, this just needs a little bit of fanning into a flame. And ruining all of our camp songs that we learned growing up, right? <clears throat> Along comes Jesus Christ, who forgives sins and heals the sick. And then he tells people to pick up their cross and follow him. And he dispenses this thing called grace to empower you to become a disciple. The free will begins to go to work then on faith. Striving, there's the word, striving in the law to ascend heavenward, this ladder of God uh, that extends up into the clouds to seeming glory where there's all the angels and they're glittering and the cherubim and the seraphim, and you read all of this in Revelation, where the Father is sitting on the throne and he's cheering you on upward while Jesus is running alongside you as your own personal trainer in righteousness, showing you the way by his example. And then there's the Holy Spirit who becomes your own inner small voice within. Well, this is what we call a pure invention. And so Luther, uh, in his own very own magnum opus, his greatest work, Uh, It's called The Bondage of the Will. He writes this about the free will. He says, The free will is not merely a pure fiction, but a bold-faced lie. So, if I were to put this in modern parlance, the free will is a deep fake. Okay? So I'm going to show you a video here in a moment. Uh, But do you know what I'm talking about when I say deep fake video? Have you seen these? So um, here's a video where, in a moment here, a video where Bill Hader is coming on the David Letterman show, and he does this three-minute interview. Obviously, this is David Letterman's show, so this is an old video. 
but I don't know what the technology is that they can do this, but he's, he, he's famous for doing in voice impressions, right? So he does a voice impression of Tom Cruise and of Seth Rogen, and as he does them, it is so creepy because his face changes to look like Tom Cruise when he does Tom Cruise, and it looks like Seth Rogen when he does Seth Rogen, and you actually believe Tom Cruise is there. But it's an illusion. Go ahead, Kill. Here's the very funny Bill Hader, ladies and gentlemen. You know, um, it seemed like every movie I, I saw in the last several months, you, you were in it. And, and, I, and, I, and good for you. That's just oh, thanks, thanks, buddy. Thanks. And uh, I, I was wondering about the one, the, uh, the Tropic Thunder. Yeah, Tropic where, Thunder. Where <laughs> Tom Cruise. You're working with Tom Cruise. What was that experience like? Uh, it was amazing. Like, uh, we got to dance together. Uh, <laughs> that was amazing. Um, we had, like, uh, you know, when you do a movie, you do table reads, you know, where, like, all the uh, actors get together. Well, at the and beginning of the At the production. beginning, before anything, you get together and you read through the script. And um, so it's, like, you know, all these heavyweights, like, you know, you know, Ben Stiller, Jack Black, Robert Downey Jr., everybody. And at the end is, like, me. Like, you know, like, hey, I'm happy to be here, guys. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, some other supporting guys. And then, uh, and then Tom Cruise walks oh, in. Oh, my God. And even those guys are like, whoa, and he's super stoked to be there, <laughs> you know, just like, yeah, oh, boom, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he's like, wow, <laughs> he's just immediately excited um, <laughs> when he walks into a room, and, uh, and uh, so he comes over and he sits next to me, and I think he had been briefed on some of the supporting guys, but uh, he was like trying to place me, <laughs> you know, so he sat down next to me, he's like, I, uh, I love your work. <laughs> and I went, oh, thanks. Uh, I love your work, too, Tom Cruise. <laughs> you know, like, thanks. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I go, yeah, you know, I'm friends with Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen, and they went to your house. And went, yes, yes, yes. I, uh, they did come to my house. And, and, I, and I said, uh, Seth Rogen was like, you know, it was amazing. He has, like... A, you know, a bike track in his backyard. It's phenomenal. <laughs> and, and I did a Seth Rogen impression, and it was like I did a magic trick. Tom Cruise was like, yeah! Wow. And he points to me. <laughs> and he pointed to me, and he goes, you do impressions, and you're on Saturday Night Live. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it was like you won a game show. He was like, yeah, Tom! <laughs> Uh, and and, and uh, that, that kind of enthusiasm from that kind of a star, obviously a little intimidating, a little overwhelming. It is a little overwhelming. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> amazing. You were able to work out and everything was fine? Yeah, and, everything was great. And he, when it was over, it was all good? Yeah, it was great. At the, premiere, he came, <laughs> at the premiere, he came up to me and he goes, can you believe we were in that movie? <laughs> and I was like, I can believe you were in that movie. <laughs> I was like, you're Tom Cruise. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you <laughs> Very eerie. Uh, the free will is a deep fake. Okay. You actually think it's there. It's an illusion. It's not there when it comes to God. Okay. Oh. <clears throat> so I want to unpack this conundrum about in three parts or so. First, there, uh, I'll do this brief reference to what the third use of the law actually is. 
historically and uh, also uh, how it is currently implied, uh, applied and delve into this law gospel distinction and the simile. So now, uh, again, I mentioned in our tradition, in my Lutheran tradition, uh, there is a very historical orientation of the third use. Philip Melanchthon, you may have heard this name, he was a, a worker with Martin Luther in the Reformation, a student of his. They learned different things from each other. Um, he was a student of Martin Luther's, uh, and he actually got the free will right, the bondage of the will it is, <clears throat> when it comes to God, very early on in one of his writings. But he's changed over time um, because in the same writing, he edited it several times. It's called the Lochi Communis, if you're interested. And this was developed, uh, this, this third use is, is what developed in these later editions. And it's called the third use, but really what this actually is for him and for the way it's often used now uh, is... Uh, to be an instruction on how to live a Christian life with a law that no longer accuses you, that no longer condemns you. So although Melanchthon was one of his most valuable partners of Luther's in the Reformation, he could not, and the reason why he does this, he could not dispense of Aristotle. Okay, so... Maybe we're not all up to snuff on Aristotle, but you actually are, and you may not know it. Because um, if, if, if you believe in potential, then you know Aristotle. Right? Um, if you think that there is a structure to this world uh, that is uh, somewhat perceptible, um, this is also Aristotle. Um, so what he does is he uses Luther's basic presuppositions about faith, and applies Aristotle to them. Not scripture, but Aristotle. This is to say, though, that Melanchthon assumes that the law is this essential structure of creation itself, and that it is necessary that the free will always has something to do. Melanchthon believed that what God's will was, was made up of made up the structure of the law itself. So Melanchthon, Christians have been redeemed by the Son of God precisely that they should exercise themselves in the law day and night. Now, some of you are probably more familiar with Calvin. Calvin was a contemporary of Luther and Philip Melanchthon's. He was a student of Luther in the sense that he uh, learned of him and his teachings. But he actually learned a lot more from Melanchthon and really became his better on this matter. So whereas Melanchthon wanted to understand the will of God, which tempted him to map out the mind of God, Calvin perfects Melanchthon by saying that the third use of the law is its primary use, its highest purpose, this Christian use of the law. So, knowledge of the law gives knowledge to know God. Specifically, it is to know the mind of God. And to know the mind of God is to know the structure and the characteristics and how God has created the world 
uh, kind of natural law. And it is an eternal law by which God is revealing himself to his creatures. The means of salvation, then, is to know and gain knowledge of the law. And you automatically are gaining knowledge of the mind of God, which to me is always a little bit creepy to think about because, you, for example, the movie um, What Women Want with a... What's his name? Um, what's it? Mel Gibson. Yeah, right? So he... he something... What does he take something? He, he learns... He, he all of a sudden begins to read women's minds. How does that go for him? Not well. Why would this go better to know the mind of God? Right? Okay. Um, the, mind, the main relationship between sinners and God is based solely then on the law. The argument... Now... Uh, this is an argument called the opinio legis. It's fancy Latin, but basically it means to think according to the law alone, the opinion of the law, to think of God according to the law alone, and to think that God thinks of you according to his law. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> if in the essence God himself is righteous, and acts only according to his own law, then this must also be true for his relationship with us. God's righteousness is expressed in his law, and justification must take place in accordance with his law. Law is therefore an eternal order, uh, sometimes also called the lex eternae, the eternal law, which lays before you the ideal to which you must live in order to find favor with God. So what Melanchthon and Calvin and many who follow suit want is that with the full knowledge of the law, it will finally not condemn. Nevertheless, what they want is a gracious law. This is what Luther calls this counterfeit law, like a chimera or a goat stag, or as I mentioned before, this deep fake, or being of the Northwest, uh, something more culturally uh, specific, Bigfoot. Just like the free will, the gracious law is a deep fake. And so, being the inveterate theologians of glory that we all are, we have concocted an augmented reality which has these two deep fakes inseparably bound, the free will and the gracious law tamed together. So let's um, take up now the distinction of the law and the gospel. So I often begin Bible studies um, <clears throat> in the same way, and that is I ask people who are there gathered to study whatever we're studying, what is it that we study the Bible for? Okay. Well, inevitably, they'll say what you would expect in that, well, we want to learn more about Jesus and salvation. But uh, also, what is often said is, well, so that we know how to live a Christian life. Now, it is possible to say that these are uh, tenuously the gospel and law, respectively, but it is interesting because very often what ensues or can ensue 
is a amalgamation of these two such that you end up only moralizing the text. What is it I'm supposed to do? And even Jesus gets thrown in this way, right? He is finally and ultimately my example. And we lose the gospel thereby. So one evening, Martin Luther was sitting at his living room table, uh, striving, that is, he was drinking his wife's homebrew, <laughs> with some of his students. <clears throat> and he confessed to them what he used to think, very modestly, I might add, uh, about the, what the relationship was between Moses and Christ, between the law and the gospel. He says, previously, I was not deficient in any way. Very modest, right? Not deficient in any way. Sounds a little bit like uh, Paul, remember in Philippians. That's the law, a Pharisee, right? He says, so Luther says, I was not deficient in any way except, something, <laughs> that I made no distinction between the law and the gospel, holding both to be the same and thinking that Christ was no different than Moses. <coughs> Except when he lived and his perfection concerning the level of the law. Thinking this way is to think of God and what God thinks of us according to the law alone or according to Moses alone, if you will. And that is our default way of human thinking. And this, again, goes like this, as I mentioned just previously. Um, and tell me if you haven't heard uh, some of these exact questions yourself or being uh, veterate sinners of glory that we are, uh, even think these. That is, again, why would God give us all these commandments if he did not intend for us to keep them? And moreover, if he knew that we couldn't keep the commandments, then punishing us unto death seems incredibly unjust. And it is precisely this sort of meat grinder that we sinners bring to the text of Scripture and squeeze it through so that the law and the gospel come out differing only in degrees, which means it becomes all law. Or in a more cunning and deceptive formula, the law is the form of the gospel. That's Bart, by the way. But I want to look at a few passages which reveal that God does not deal with us according to his law alone. Though the law is certainly there and it has a right purpose. But that has an entirely other way, that he has an entirely other way of dealing with us outside of the law. That is to say, God's word is not one word of the law or command of what you are to do, but there's actually two words from God for you, the commands and the promises, the law and the gospel. So, for example, we see in chapter 1 of John, the law was indeed given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we have a clear word from Paul as well in his famous line in, his, in the second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, 
3, 6. That the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Not the law. Luther concluded his confession about how he had once believed the difference between the law and the gospel, Moses and Christ, was that, was that they, believed, they lived different in different times and in different levels of perfection by saying this. But afterward, I learned that the law was one thing and the gospel was another, and then I broke through. So what are these two words then from God? And how do we distinguish them? So I'm going to pause here for a moment. Uh, this, is, this is our human default mode of speaking. We put ourselves in the subject of the sentence. I do that all the time. I'm doing it here. But to be clear, you and me are not the ones who actually distinguish the law and the gospel. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the art of the Holy Spirit to distinguish these two. And it does this. The Holy Spirit distinguishes between the two. Not abstractly, not while you sit in your, I don't know, your, your, your house or the coffee shop just pondering these things. Or when you're driving down I-5 and the radio comes on, radio, uh, serious radio, whatever it is, and you find yourself behind a big wheel in an automobile, and you ask yourself, how did I get here? Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was, right? So... It is the Spirit who actually comes and does this in you, for you, by sending you an actual word through an actual preacher of God's word so that you might receive and hear this for yourself as good news. Luther was grasped by the Second Corinthians 3, 6 verse and as many other texts which seem to stake out an, a limit to the law, a purpose for the law. No one is righteous, no, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is familiar from Romans, he's preaching Isaiah. This is from Isaiah. Psalm 14, <clears throat> the law was given to reveal transgressions. So he actually finds the answer to this question of our way of thinking according to the law. That is, why would God give us all these laws if he didn't want us to do them? Why? Paul answers with this categorical, unqualified really atomic bomb for us. That the law came to increase sin, not to decrease it. And why in the world would God send a word that would increase our sin? Well, in the very next verse, it says, so that grace may abound. What? Why? Well, so that no one can boast in works of the law. So that Christ, who is not the law and not a new and better Moses in the law, would become your righteousness outside of the law. 
and its demands and condemnations. Yes, strangely, God has consigned all to disobedience. All means everyone, everything. So that he may have mercy on all, on you, on me. Or even in Galatians, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So very similar verses in Romans and Galatians. I'm, I'm pretty convinced almost by now that Paul only ever has one sermon, and he just keeps recycling it everywhere he goes. Uh, so you're all absolved to do the same. Uh, Paul does it, and so can you. Uh, uh, it's good. It's a good sermon uh, because it does this work of getting the word that, well, divides sinew from bone. It puts us to death, and it raises us uh, to new life in Christ. But this brings me to an important point, that Melanchthon's notion that the Christian has been redeemed by the Son of God, precisely that he should exercise himself day and night in the law, gets exposed as this deep fake. That is, he superimposes Aristotle's understanding of the law over the scripture, which results in this augmented reality, meaning it's illusory, it's not real. But when Luther broke through, as he said, or really, he would say, agree, I think, that it broke through him, it broke him, <clears throat> with the actual purpose of the law, that we are not made better Christians by it, but we are condemned by it. His definition of the law was utterly different, and in my opinion, actually much more helpful uh, to describe and diagnose what's going on in our own lives. So for Luther, the law was whatever in all of creation that exposes sin, works wrath, kills the old sinner. It is not as though we are given this moral code. So this is a... This is, this is what finally Melanchthon thinks, is that here's this moral code. And by the way, I shouldn't pick on Melanchthon so much. This is everywhere, right? He isn't the originator of it. Um, that we have this code, and we are these neutral beings. We just need to get the code, and we'll be on our way. Right? This, is, this is what he thinks. And we in our old sinful selves think this. But then stuff happens. that doesn't seem to line up with this code in our life, and it condemns and it crucifies and it kills us so this is how we this is how we um, begin to understand I think that this definition of the law is anything that kills and accuses so for Melanchthon the gospel enables the sinner to fulfill the law you've heard this probably before <clears throat> so but for Luther and this is shocking, okay? This is a bomb, I'm just warning you. Um, but this is how it is. Anything that is not Jesus Christ accuses, kills, condemns. Jesus Christ saves means the law cannot. If Christ saves, your works of love cannot. Now, I'll talk briefly about 
where works of love end up and what their use is. But I'm also going to say this. Um, as much as I teach this and you hear it, um, that we're distinguishing these two, your old Adam never will be able to get this. Okay? We are, again, we are inveterate sinners. We are addicted to the law. Um, we in ourselves do not believe this. It has to be given to us uh, from the outside. Um, <clears throat> so, now, uh, on this basis, we understand that God can actually deal with us, interestingly, apart from the law, and rightly so. He deals with us according to his Son. So God's word is not just one word, this law and command, but uh, two words, the law and the gospel. The law given to kill, ultimately, and the gospel given to give new life. That was not there before. So, it is true that your neighbor needs your good works. Talked about this a little bit already. God does not. Um, When Dax, uh, um, trying to remember the Ephesians text or the devotions. that you, know, you were created by him to be a ma- uh, I think there's some translations that have it as um, a masterpiece. It's kind of something, right? Uh, masterpiece. I don't know. <laughs> Looking in the mirror, you don't really think that sometimes. Um, but uh, he has also prepared for you ahead of time the works that you are to do. So here's the thing. Not only does God create and give you faith, the trust, by promise, he is also doing and giving you the good works. In other words, you don't have to worry about those either. This is shocking. Um, so um, let me get here in a moment to this, this understanding of the symbol. Your old Adam is driven by the law and remains under the law and will grind out works that your neighbor will benefit from. Whether or not you enjoy them, uh, that's really beside the point. The point is, it's for the neighbor. At the same time, your new creature also does these works. You will not be able to tell who is doing what when. Your left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, vice versa. Okay? Um, the same person who takes out the trash is the sinner and the saint. Okay? Uh, same two people. I'll get there in a minute. I should back up a moment. So I've, I've mentioned this term, third use. Obviously, there must be first and second use, and what are they? Um, <clears throat> so th- these are descriptive categories, right? Um, but they're not unhelpful. It doesn't mean they aren't true. It helps actually quite a bit to understand how these, uh, how the law works. And the two uses he just labels as the civil use and the theological use. The civil use is simply um, to civilize you in this world. Where the name comes from, civil. Um, It's uh, the law between you and your neighbors 
that is anybody, really, your family, your um, local community, your church, whatever. And it has actually the coercive power over your flesh to force you to do the things that you don't want to do, like pay your taxes or go the speed limit. (laughs) Um, And to do those things you probably don't want to do, like the dishes or go to work. You have this horrible boss, you don't want to go, but you're forced to go there. Your flesh is forced to do this. Um, Well, for the sake of the neighbor. Um, Now, it's pretty clear if you look a a little bit in your own life and lives of others that this doesn't always work all the time. It works sometimes on some of us, some of the time. Like maybe 76% of the time or whatever it might be. Um, but it has this purpose in this old world. And God actually uses this, uh, the law, for all people, not just us in the church, not just Christians, but for all people, um, <clears throat> whether or not they know it. Now, the second use that's uh, labeled as the theological use is the primary use, and it is not the use that uh, the primary use that Calvin identified. The primary use is derived from Paul's own. Uh, well, Paul gets from the the Psalms, that is uh, to reveal our transgressions, to drive us to Christ. The law is revealed; it works in us condemnation, accusation. You're the man, right? Nathan says, David, you did it. The accusation is there, and it is to drive you to the cross, to Christ. That is the primary use that God is using on us. And again, the reason why a simple code doesn't even encapsulate that, that, that is, for example, okay, you're driving down the road and you get pulled over by the whoop, whoop, and suddenly you have a DUI or a third DUI. Okay. Um, or perhaps uh, your spouse catches you or finds texting, sexting to someone not your spouse. You get hot. Or, and here's where the code just doesn't seem to apply. And I know many of you have been there or perhaps are there now. I remember when I got the call that my mother had cancer. And I also remember when the doctor came in, the oncologist came in and said, you have cancer and I can't cure you. Okay. Okay, so what law does that fall under? Which, which of the ten? Right? So this is, this is why this description of the law is anything that accuses, that would cover it then. Right? Anything that uh, accuses, condemns, and kills. One of the key questions that I have been taught uh, by one of my own teachers is to ask either a pastor or a you read theology, a theologian, or yourself in Scripture. 
That is, what is the place of the law in your theology? Is it just this uh, static, objective, eternal order embedded in creation such that there is a remnant of the divine spark in your heart and in your mind that aims heavenward up this with a goal of fulfillment with a little help of grace? Or does the law that accuses and kills come to an end? in Christ for you when he arrives as sheer promise for you. Is the law eternal or not? If you're on the interwebs, you know this is still very hotly debated. Does the law come to an end? And then where is this thing called freedom that Paul talks about? How do, we get, how do we get this freedom? If the law is eternal and God is in himself righteous in the law and gives us this very law, then it must be that he wants us to comply. Okay? So, if I want my children to stop picking their nose and to wipe their ha- or wash their hands after they go to the bathroom... I expect them to comply. Right? Uh, and I'm not giving them a choice. I want them to actually do it. And by so issuing the command, I'm removing their choice. Now, they most definitely have a will. It's just bound, as is mine and yours. Maybe I just need to tell them what to do uh, and give them an example. Or someone else who they look up to better uh, to give the example. They have a will, and mom has given them the law. So why don't they do it? Maybe they need me to show them how to do it. So this same kind of understanding of the law between me and my children and you and your family and you and your boss of the law is how we see our relationship with God. He says, for example, you shall not lie about your neighbor. So we automatically put in our, our deep fake ideas of the free will and the gracious law and go to work on the Christian life. Yes, we already know that Jesus died for our sins, but he doesn't want us to keep on sinning. So it must be that he gives us grace so that we can strive in righteousness in the law. Which then gets us step by step up this ladder to Heaven. Little by little, we climb Jacob's ladder. Anybody remember that song? You ever grow up hearing that song? After all, how else do you explain all these commands from God? 
if we ought to, it must mean that we can't. So this is where uh, somebody like Luther will enter in and say, you are correct. The scripture is full of God's law. What you are to do and what you are not to do. The glaring problem, however, as has been pointed out, Jeff mentioned, you don't do it. I don't do it. We're terrible at it. Uh, you ever been to a men's breakfast Bible study or a patch clatch with the women at the church? <laughs> uh, any gossip going on there ever? How are we doing at that, at that particular law? Now, the law is, in fact, Paul says, this beautiful, salutary, holy gift to us. However, it does not give you the power to accomplish it. I say to my kids, don't pick your nose. It gives them zero power to even do it. They're just up there all day. <laughs> right? <clears throat> don't commit adultery. And by that, I mean, do not lust after people who are not your spouse. You're not married, don't lust after anyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by that, I mean those who hate you, who wish evil to fall on you, those who are ruining your life, your livelihood, your relationships, your reputation, those who actively seek your death. When we go on from there, as if those weren't enough, well, we create our own more preferable laws, right? Stop smoking, stop drinking, exercise more, eat a little less, eat tofurkey. That's a thing, right? That's still... Because the worst thing you could do on Thanksgiving is eat a butterball turkey. <clears throat> go paleo, go keto, Vegetarian, no. Vegan. Eat pea protein, not beef protein. Or better yet, the best. The water-only diet. No food, just water. And for goodness sake, do not use a plastic straw to drink that water. <laughs> Feeling empowered yet? Yeah, by the way, if you don't feel condemned... Uh, I'll send you a, a, a invite to this uh, Facebook page, uh, part of uh, for uh, for lurking purposes. It's called Zero Waste in Maple Valley. You part of this? I'm gonna invite you. Uh, there was recently a, a post. All of this, of course, is for you know, this is a good idea kind of post. Um, not in the least bit mocking. But uh, it was talking as an article about a place in Tel Aviv, of all places. Um, I don't know why they're not like here or in UK. But uh, there was a picture. Uh, so someone had been um, posting pictures of uh, Greta Thunberg. You know, what I'm talking about the little girl uh, who who has these videos now about 
um, well, environmental concerns. You can, you can look her up. But they, they post her pictures around the office wherever there's plastic products, like, like plastic cups by the, by the, by the watering hole, uh, to discourage you from using plastic, right? So uh, there's more for you there. The law tells you what to do, but we do not do it. <clears throat> by the way, uh, you may be very good at not using plastics and making zero waste. It does not create a new heart. It does not make you a Christian. Okay. What the law wants is for you to do it perfectly all the time without grumbling before you are asked to do it. You are to serve everyone in front of you all the time without fail. This is what the law demands. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Everyone. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I was traveling from Issaquah down to where we live in Maple Valley. So it's about a 30-minute drive when there's no traffic. And uh, I had a short window to get to Maple Valley because I had to get my kids at the bus stop. They're young. And if I don't pick them up, you know, something bad's going to happen. Like they're going to get picked up by somebody, right? Just the mother's worry. Um, so I'm doing my good deed, right? I'm doing the mom thing. I'm going to pick up my children. I, I turn the corner, and there is a man who is probably in his 60s. He, in my judgment, looks like he's probably homeless because he's got clothes that are tattered and dirty. He's unshaven, and, you know, he looks like John the Baptist, kind of. And he's stepping, not, he's not in the shoulder. He is in the middle of the road, waving me down. He wants me to stop. Now, I have to get my kids, and I'm to help this man. I can't do both. It crucifies me. It kills me. I cannot be in both places at the same time. I won't. I'm already mad at him because I have to go get my... Doesn't he know I'm grumbling, right? Uh, it crucifies us. It shows us that we are not doing this ever. Willingly. Okay? All sorts of grumbling. Now... The Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, is he exaggerating? No. Be perfect. He's deadly serious. But do you remember what he says at the beginning of that section? So context again, right? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, which is, you know, kind of what we like. Don't ask me to take care of this man in the street. Just my kids. As if that's not going to be my death. <clears throat> um, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. 
And we say, you know, Jesus, could you just ease up on the Eighth Commandment a little bit or the Seventh Commandment, just a smidge, like one iota or two? Because, after all, we live in a social media texting age, and that makes it really difficult for me not to gossip about my neighbor when I'm talking to my friend on the text thread. I mean, after all, I did, a, did put forth a good faith effort. I suspended my Facebook account and my Twitter account. He's laughing, too. <laughs> Perfection and fulfillment of the law is required by the law, yet it does not give us the power to do it. I always think it when I hear this, uh, the scene from Star Wars, New Hope, and Star Wars fans here, right? I should have had that clip too. Uh, but when Yoda's training Luke in the Force, and uh, I can't remember exactly what Luke says, but something about, you know, I just need to try harder. And Luke, Yoda just says, and you know what he says, there is do or not do. There is no try. Okay? Be perfect. I'm not asking you to try, man. I'm telling you, be perfect. <clears throat> And it sure sounds like Jesus is saying that the law is eternal when he says, until heaven and earth pass away, and I have not come to abolish the law. The key to the distinction between the law and the gospel, however, does actually uh, lie in this section of the passage. Because there is actually a promise, the gospel, from Christ, He says, I have come to fulfill them. To understand this is to first observe who it is that is fulfilling the law. It is not our free will. It is not us with a little help of grace. It is Christ. It is him who fulfills the law. What the law and the prophets want is not the Christian striving in the law with the help of grace, but Christ. Christ and him crucified is, as Paul says repeatedly, the end of the law. He both fulfills the law and the law's goal. He is the law's terminus and its completion not its continuation. He fulfills the law in the cross because there, there he takes the sin of the whole world in his body, including yours and mine, we being in the world. Everything that we've ever done, are doing, will do. He takes it in his body. He bears it. Even more than that, uh, this is one of those places in, in Scripture that we that sometimes gets forgotten. This is glaring. That's um, glaring for us because we are always trying to keep Jesus away from sin, God away from sin. Right? And Paul says, "No, he who knew no sin was made to be sin, made to be." Your sin, made to be my sin. 
no sin. He never sinned himself, but he took our sin, such that he became our sin. He became my sin. He became Cain's sin. He became Moses' sin, Abraham's, Rahab's. You go on through the scripture, Jonah, Job, Peter, Paul, Judas, all the disciples. this point, Christ on the cross with the whole world's sin on his body, in his body, such that he became it, the law saw that there was no more sin in the whole world except on this one man. Not on you, not on me, but on Christ. Luther puts it plainly that Christ became the greatest sinner because of this. Not because he himself committed these sins, but because he took them from me. In his own body, where the law found them, and so killed him. In his death, the executing of sin in his body, the law was satisfied. The law was fulfilled, and therefore it suddenly became silent. Nothing to say. Nothing else to accuse. Christ's death is the death of sin. And death is not only fulfillment, but freedom from the law for you as well. Paul always said, we, in our way of thinking, death is the end of freedom, right? It's, well, had my shot. Time ran out. Paul says, those who have died are actually the ones who are free from the law. <clears throat> Romans 6, 7, by the way. For anyone who has died is free from sin. The law is silenced at the death of Christ. For there is no more sin left to accuse. There is no more sin in you. For for it is crucified in the body of Christ unto death. Therefore, it is the end of the law for you. The law is not eternal. The gospel is. I think that's Revelation 4.16. I might want to check that. The angels preach the everlasting gospel. Not the law. The gospel, which is Christ. Your Savior. Your life. The fulfilling of the law and the death of Christ on the cross does not mean... But the law is the standard of righteousness by which you now, we're after the cross, must now live empowered by the grace of Christ to fulfill it yourself. When Christ was crucified, it was fulfilled. And in that, it was canceled. 
and remove. Uh, scripture will say uh, the debt. All the debt's paid now. It is removed as your righteousness before God. In the death of Christ, the law was extinguished. It was emptied out of its power and made to be quiet. The law demanded perfection, satisfaction, and it received that in Jesus Christ. What the law wants is not a gracious law or a Christian use of the law, but it wants Christ. As Paul tells the Galatians, it's always a shocker. Every time I read this, and every time I hear this, like, oh, yeah, it's always new. Forget this. That the law was our tutor towards Christ, not the law. The law was our guardian. It was our toward Christ. To Christ, who is not the law. Uh, Rome, uh, Galatians 3.24 2526 So that we may be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the law. Okay? So, Jesus Christ has freed you from your sin, from your death, and from the bondage that you have to the devil, enslavement to wrath, and the law. There is nothing left for you to do. Anybody panicking yet? There is nothing left for you to do. This is so. This is our um, PTSD. If I okay, trigger warning, right? This is where we come in. Uh, so I I grew up Missouri Synod. This is where the third use is uh, very strong, and some in some. Uh, well, this is where it's debated. <laughs> um, you probably know it not as the term third use, but in the ways that we've talked about it, um, that the grace gives you the power to do the law. Um, remind me that Sproul quote, it, we are justified not because of our obedience to God, but so that we may become obedient to God. Right? This is what you're waiting for me to say. You expect, we've come to expect this. Um, there's nothing for you to do. Full stop. Christ has fulfilled the law for your sake. This is what we mean by the gospel, by grace for you. And it is what is meant to finally be an evangelical, even a Lutheran. For Christ is the end of the law for faith. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Now, I've ended my sermon. And imagine coming through the doorway, third use Thelma, striving Steve, shaking my hand, and starts to utter an array of flaccid darts. Have you no shame, Pastor? No. I'm unashamed of the gospel. For it is the salvation for everyone who believes. 
four. You have just let out the hounds of anarchy and debauchery. <laughs> I know you are. No, the dogs were already out. Ever since the garden and murderous Cain. Yeah, we sinners have a very bad habit of attributing sinfulness and being sinners to the gospel and to Jesus. It's his fault we're sinners. This is our, our, our MO. We blame Christ for this. But he is the end of sin. It is not the gospel that increases sin. What increases sin? The law. Makes no sense to our way of thinking. It's all law. We get better by doing the law. We and we again, our old Adam cannot distinguish. Well, yeah, but yeah, but we cannot distinguish between what we do in this world from how God sees us. That's our old Adam. But here's another one. All of this free grace will lead to license to sin. No, we were sinning just fine before grace came. (laughs) Remember, it is the law that reveals sin. It doesn't remove it. Or did you just make us all antinomians? All right, one more time. No, the antinomian is also a deep fake. Theatrics carried out before an empty theater. Not real. Uh, another uh, teacher I know said if you just scratch a, a legalist, or I'm going to get this backwards, aren't I? If you just scratch an antinomia a little bit, you'll find a legalist, or vice versa. Legal's bound. Legalist bound. That is our. our human bound way of thinking. Or this oldie big goldie. Cheap grace. Too much cheap grace. Why is it that we sinners always want to raise the rate on that which God has given you for free? Especially, okay, especially, I mean, you have your people in your life You don't want to give them grace. I have mine. My short list has another name that I don't want to give grace. And just, yeah. As Jeff was saying, I do not love these people. I need absolution. I need the gospel. Because I raise the rate of grace for those particular people, I make them pay. I want my pound of flesh. Well, okay, so what does Paul mean when in Romans 3 he says these two things? 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And just a few sentences later, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay? So what is he doing? Is he establishing a new use for the Christian of the law? A gracious law, perhaps. Rather, he is teaching and preaching in such a way that the law is established now down here on earth. Like I said, there is no such thing as an antinomian. Whether you like it or not, anyone and everyone comes under the law. Everybody, well, everybody has to, excuse me, pay their taxes, okay? So that's, everybody has to answer to God. He is establishing the law down on this earth where God intends it to subdue our flesh in service of our neighbor. Whether we want to or not, he will squeeze love out of you. And usually the old Adam doesn't unless I get some benefit back. Unless my investment grows. Christ has destroyed the law as the stairway to heaven or as a means of righteousness before God. That is his rule. He is your righteousness. The law is good, however, in the old world for the purpose that I mentioned above, to civilize your flesh. For someone like Melanchthon, the law is circumscribed by a code or as a code. Not a power that accuses, that I've I've given some examples of. And in subsequent centuries since the Reformation, of which we all benefit, the law-gospel distinction has been flattened out. This, This is our doesn't make sense, doesn't line up, we're going to make it line up. It's going to coincide with each other. So the law then becomes the form of the gospel. That's I mentioned earlier from Bart. Whereas Luther defines this most proper sense of the law to be that which reveals sin and consequently kills our own opinion legus, our thinking according to the law. which continues to persist in our old Adam. And we continue to look for this special use, whether we know it or not, in our relationships with one another. And again, we can't, our old Adam only understands our relationships with one another to be evident of and reflective of our relationship to God. <clears throat> In fact, the gospel in this formula is what makes the law work in this formula. The law is the form of the gospel. Interestingly, when the discussion of the third use begins, much of the language uh, is to the virtual exclusion, not only of the first and second use of the law, but Jesus Christ. 
mentioned earlier, Jeff said, it all becomes about me and what I do. Christ, uh, he's cheering me on. Um, he's in the cheering section. If that. Or maybe I might counsel him for some example. So the difficulty for this case of the third use, the but of you are free, there's nothing for you to do, but third use, the difficulty always arises when we come to Scripture, of course. When Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, he makes yet again an assertion for what we call the simul, what I mentioned before, the simul. I say that short for the simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and sinner. But he amplifies it with the confession that it is Christ who is the saint in him. Not himself, because he says he's been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, I'm dead in my sins, but Christ who lives in me, he says. This is the death blow, not only to the third use, but to the law altogether, and our supposed free will. Because if it is Christ who lives in you by faith, and he has fulfilled the law, then everything is already accomplished. Faith alone, Luther says, fulfills the law. The law is canceled then for your sake by Christ. The account has been settled on the cross of Christ, and on his cross there is no remaining balance. Paul preached that the law was our tutor who is the end was our tutor to Christ who is the end of the law but Melanchthon Calvin and others preach that the gospel is our tutor in the law with no end to be justified by faith apart from works in the law while at the same time upholding the law it's not that now the old Adam does what the law says, but what has happened is that a new age has dawned. This is a language that Paul uses. Uh, a new age, you are translated into a new kingdom. The arrival of Christ crucified. That is his kingdom. And this is the preaching of him to yellow-bellied sinners like you and I, such that now there is not one kingdom of the law, but two kingdoms. One kingdom of the law is this earthly realm where we in our old flesh are ruled. Uh, Luther likes to call, he's got some colorful language, you might be aware, calls our old flesh the Madenzak, the, uh, the sack of maggots or sack of worms. And it remains under the demands of the law. In the other kingdom, Christ rules by grace, by the gospel, and faith lives. That's where the saints live free from the law. Faith, which is this entirely new creature, 
that did not exist before the hearing of the promise of Christ to forgive you your sins, however, is no longer under the law but free. The law rules the flesh. The gospel rules faith. There is not one kingdom but two. There is an old kingdom under the law and there is a new under, under, under the spirit and faith. With these two rulers, the law and the gospel. Which means there are two yous. Okay. So, simul. And I know I'm over time. Ah. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. Um, our simul. We are simul. We are a simul. We are not one. Let's see if I can do this more condensed since I'm way over. Um, we assume that we are one person and we are, as Christians, getting better day by day, little by little, with grace. If we don't assume that others think that's what should be happening to us, right? That's why they call us hypocrites. Um, or maybe it was uh, before uh, I converted, I was really bad at the law. Now that I'm converted, I'm doing much better at the law. You are a symbol in this that in yourself, you are 100% totally a sinner. And in Christ, you are 100% totally a saint. And you are both at the same time. You are not 100%, you are 200%. The saint, however, you cannot see. It is by faith. It is faith in Christ. It is Christ outside of you. That is your new life, after all, Paul says. How am I doing? Terrible. See? It's the law. I'm awful. <laughs> Our penchant for being long-winded. Stands um, confirmed. Uh, let me see. A couple more. So, this language of the symbol. One more thing is uh, a phrase that Luther coins, but it, very commonly we read this in Romans 7, right? The good I would, I do not do, and that which I shouldn't do, that is what I do. Um, or you can see it also in Galatians 5, um, where he has the, the, the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the, of the flesh, and in between there is this verse 17 of the symbol. Again, same sermon, rejiggered for the other congregation. But Luther makes this, uh, argument for the symbol, not from Paul. He sees it first in, well, he, he gives us both uh, John and in Job. So listen to this. This is fascinating. And then I'll be done. Those who have been justified in Christ are not sinners and are sinners, nevertheless. Paradox. Scripture establishes both facts, he says about the Christian. John says in the first chapter of his canonical epistles, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In the last chapter of the same epistle, he says, we know that everyone who is born of God does not sin. You do not sin. Well, you don't. In Christ, you do not sin. Same writer says, 
in the third chapter, no one born of God commits sin because his, de- his seed abides in him. That is Christ, the seed abides. And he is not able to sin. You are not able to sin. Who am I talking to now? The saints. Behold, he is not able to sin, says John. Yet, he says he has no sin. If he has no sin, he is lying. There's a symbol. Also, a similar paradox, he says, can be seen in Job. Job is the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament in this, that he was blameless. He says it of himself. God says it of Job as well. God, whom God, uh, Job, whom God, who cannot lie, pronounces righteous and innocent, blameless and upright, this man in the first chapter of Job, verse 8. Yet later, Job confesses in various passages that he is a sinner, especially in the ninth and seventh chapters. He says, why do you not take away my iniquity? He must have sins to be taken away. But Job must be speaking the truth because if he were lying in the presence of God, then God would not pronounce him righteous. He's being truthful about the fact that he's a sinner. <laughs> Accordingly, Job is both righteous and a sinner. Simul eustus, simul peccati. All right, I'm going to end real quickly. You again, are Christ's own dear child. All of your sin has been taken. There is nothing left for you to do. It is accomplished. It is finished. You are free in Christ. Amen. Period. The end. So, I did not leave time for questions, did I? I didn't leave time for lunch. did budget extra time, not knowing that she really liked to talk, but great stuff. And what we'll do is you'll have to find her and ask your questions. Please do. You can ask questions, and we'll just have a little less exercise time after lunch because we did schedule an hour and a half right here. It'll be a little shorter. We're still going to hold to our schedule, but we're going to eat right now. So um, what's going to happen? Let me describe to you. There are plates of food made for you. There are only two kinds. One is regular. It's a, a Greek restaurant in town. This is, I'm not going to say it right, souvlaki. Did I get it? Thank you. Someone said it better over there. So it's, and so you take a plate, and it'll have um, souvlaki and rice and things on it, but then there's bread and salad, uh, which is a Greek salad, so it's not lettuce. It's uh, the other stuff um, (laughs) in bowls. And so serve yourself. They just wanted me to make sure you know the olives are not pitted. I guess that's really important, so don't take a big bite of olive and break tooth. Um, so basically, you'll just go up and get a plate and go through, um, eat on the tables around, have uh, fun doing that, ask questions, those sort of things. But I would like to pray for our food. So would you bow with me? Lord, thank you that we can have such rich teaching, such depth of theology, but Lord, also such sustenance physically. Thank you for the food. Thank you for these who have prepared it and arranged it. And Lord, thank you so much that it's finished. We can declare it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so jump in, and uh, we'll, we'll meet back. We'll follow our schedule. We'll meet back here at uh, 1.30.
campaign just letting people know there is bottled water and fizzy water, bubbly or whatever, underneath the tables over here. So if you didn't get something to drink and would like it, it's there. It's just kind of hidden. you got to find it.
the east side of the ball. Sanders cuts oh. back. Oh. Has a little room outside. Oh. Here goes Barry Sanders. and the word choice is bland. Grammarly's cutting-edge technology helps you craft compelling, understandable writing that makes an impact on your reader. Much better. Are you ready to give it a try? Installation is simple and free. Visit Grammarly.com millions of amazing vacation homes to find you the perfect pool where everyone has their own chair and their own style from beach houses to cabins to condos travel better together with Burbo.
Sanders a spectacular touchdown run. And they snap for about the snap. A five-game losing streak. Through the right side. 